Hello and welcome to this episode of The Pod Presents Primarily Context-Based. This podcast is a collaboration between CTOcraft and Skillawell, and it was inspired by the Q&A site Stack Overflow, where questions have to have a single right answer, and questions can be closed into archive because they're considered primarily opinion-based. We think that the most interesting questions don't have a single right answer, and they are primarily context-based. This podcast takes one of those questions, talks about a range of answers and the context that makes them appropriate. I'm Hal Carver. I'm the CEO of Skillawell. We do deep coaching for tech teams, which is individually personalized, hands-on sessions with a live expert delivered remotely in one-hour chunks. I've been a CTO and run CTO dinners for the last 10 years in total. I've coached CTOs as well. And in all of those experiences, I've seen that the same questions come up again and again, but with different answers every time. And that's because context is critical. Today, we're going to be talking about leading through change. Where do you start? And I'm joined by Ryan Tomlinson, VP of Engineering and Product at Helix. And I'm particularly excited to have Ryan on because he's a great tech leader, but also because he has a t-shirt that says, it depends. Hi, Ryan. (laughs) Hello, how are you doing? I'm well, I'm well. The t-shirt is so on brand for this podcast. It's not there. It's not there today. I unfortunately uh, didn't put it on today. But yes, it's uh, the answer to most questions. Exactly. All of the interesting questions anyway. (laughs) Do you want to tell us a little bit about your, your background and where you've been before Helix? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So as you say, I'm the VP of Engineering and Product at Helix, which is a small biotech based in Cambridge. Yeah, but before that, I've worked in companies like Salesforce and OpenTable and and GSK. So mostly tech background. My background is an engineer. Um, Very long time ago, there's uh, there's smarter people than me that uh, that do that. And now I'm, uh, for my sins, a a leader and a a manager in in the tech space. Awesome. And today we're going to be talking about organizational change and where you start with it. And I thought it'd be good to give some kind of examples about what we're really talking about here, because I think one of the phenomena that come with change is also failure, right? The word change gets used a lot on a small kind of incremental scale. I think change is often easier. Transformational change, changing how bodies of people work or how they work together often fails and is hard. Does that match your experience? It does. And I think you're right. I think the ideal situation for an organization is that you never have to go through a a transformation, you know, because as you say, you should be evolving continually. You should be inspecting and adapting as an organization as, as we do with product. So I think the idea is that we should continually be doing that. I think where organizations perhaps might lag, they end up going through these digital or tech transformations, which is a a chance for them to reset maybe because of market conditions, or as I say, the kind of they haven't kept up with the industry. And so uh, for me, I think the bottom line is you should never really have to go through a transformation. But of course, we know that, you know, even large and successful organizations like Microsoft, you know, under Satya has been through a, a quite a large transformation. And you're right in what you say. There was a study, I forget by whom, but I think it was like 85% plus of digital transformations actually end up in, in failure. Mm. And so in that context, what does failure mean? If you're undertaking a digital transformation and it fails, does that mean you end up without any digital? Again, it depends on how these transformation is is set up. And I think a lot of them fail because they um, fail to get a clear vision. Um, and they fail for many reasons, of course, but I think they have a, uh, don't have a clear vision. And so often internally, they'll talk about an agile transformation or a, a digital transformation, which 
I mean, neither of those things really mean anything. And so I think one of the reasons for failure is that there isn't a shared understanding of the directionality of the vision of where organizations are headed. But I think most importantly is the lack of strategy. So even in organizations where they have a clear understanding of where they're all trying to get to, there's often like a lack of measurement to progress to know that we're headed in the right vector. And there's um, often a lack of communication as well in terms of are we progressing or not? Do we feel like we're achieving our goals that get us to that vision? But I think, yeah, and I think strategy is, is often a miss. Again, it's much like the word agile. The word strategy has almost become meaningless, right? Mm-hmm. So similar with agile, are we going through an agile transformation? No idea what that means. And it's the same with strategy. Often people talk about strategy and they mean a roadmap. And so without often leadership putting in a clear mission and a strategy, yeah, the organization doesn't, doesn't know whether it's headed in the, right, in the right direction. So these things will often peter out or a new CTO or a CIO will come in and it will get reset and they'll come in with their own transformation. Yeah, but I, I love the point you make that the transformation in itself is kind of a, a negative sign. The fact that you have to make a transformation suggests a big bang change. I remember reading the book, The Fifth Discipline, um, by Peter Senge, which basically makes the argument for organizations being constantly learning. I think it just calls it the learning organization and adapting. And it feels like what you're saying is that it's the, the failure to become that that means that people have to transform rather than continually adapting and evolving. You have to have these big bang projects where you say, okay, now everyone, we're doing agile and now we're going to do DevOps and now we're going to do DevSecOps, I don't know, whatever is the next thing after that. Of course, yeah. And the thing is, organizations are complex, right? There's no pithy, easy answer to these these things. Mm -hmm. And the transformation has to be based around the context of the organization. You know, why are we trying to change? What are we trying to do? What does that future look like? If I come into the organization in two or three years' time, what is different and how are we kind of working? How are we interacting? What is what is different in that environment? I think the biggest failure, the biggest thing that I think is overlooked is the cultural side of those things. Because often you'll get, as I say earlier, you'll get a new CTO who'll come in and they'll they'll be there to transform the organization. And for those folks who are internal, perhaps might have been in that organization for some time, how are they going to feel, right? Because the message there is, oh, we haven't been doing things right. We haven't done things correctly. Now, for a leader to come in, make that change, you know, emotional intelligence, empathy, things that are typically called soft skills. I like to call them human skills. But those things are fundamental because you can't drive change without the people. And the people have to understand the context. They have to understand the why. But I think most importantly, they have to be part of it. You know, I think often leaders come come in and believe they're the person who makes the decision and they're the person who sets the direction and, you know, those people who do the work are the executors. And it's just not true. You're not going to drive change unless the people I, I think are involved. So not just kind of that they have a voice, but they're actively involved. And often what I've found in my experience at GSK and OpenTable, the people have the answers, right? And often the way that the organization, that the new leadership wants to work those people want to work in that way anyway. They just haven't been empowered. They haven't had the culture. They haven't had the environment and the safety to work like that. You know, we talk about psychological safety a lot. And that came out of a study from uh, Google, from Project Aristotle, where they looked Mm -hmm. at what makes a high performing organization. And most people would think, well, it's, you know, it's skills. And of course, skills are important, but it's not. It's the ability to have a voice, to be heard and to be part of that. So of course, 
skills. Again, it's super complex and there's no pithy singer, one-liner. Skills are important, of course. But if you don't have the culture and the environment that enables people to be involved in that change, you're going to fight a battle that I think as a leader, you're never going to win. Yeah. Have you ever seen that TV format where the, the sort of CEO manager of some very large organization disguises themselves for a week or something and works with the people who are sort of at the, the bottom yes. rung, the kind of people that like often it's in like high street retailers or something like that, or fast food restaurants. And it always struck me watching those that, that you shouldn't need to go on the show, that there should be a way for you to learn the insight of those people. It, it's not a surprise that week after week, they find another organization where the employees who are very far from the CEO still have a lot of insight and ideas and understand the real problems in a, a way that the kind of upper levels of management don't. Undercover boss or something, something like that. But it's the same episode each week where there's like a yeah, point of, re- right. of realisation that, that they should keep their ear to the ground and that the people have the, have the answers. And it's an interesting point, actually, because really like the goal of a good leader is to bring and bridge that disconnect. You know, often what you'll find is you'll have a exec team or a senior leadership team who squirrel away and can't come up with a strategy and then they, they think their role is to throw that down. And I think that's, at least I hope it is, but I think it is changing whereby mm. there's much more of inclusive nature. The role of leadership should be to clear the path, you know, and of course they're going to set direct direction and, and, and strategy and, and, and so on. But I don't think it needs to be done in a, in a silo. And I think the new generation of leadership really is about demystifying the intersection between senior leadership and those smart people that actually do the work, you know, and we can do that with improving communication. You know, we can transcribe mm. senior leadership meetings. We can, you know, use tools like PCON and things like that to measure engage and, and get feedback. Or we can just go and sit with our people, you know, and just work with them and ask them pros- probing questions. But I do think, you know, particularly my goal as a leader and one of my values is to just reduce that disconnect and just come together mm. as a single team. We have different roles, but I think, you know, servant leadership, our ability to clear the path, I think is the role of good leaders. And that's how you in- inspire, you know, that's how you inspire change. And I think a lot of good leadership, for me at least, looks like openness about the pressures on you from all directions and, you know, the reason we're doing this. One of the things I hear when you talk about strategy being kind of built in a silo and then thrown down to the rest of the company to implement is exactly that, that it's an opaque process. It's very hard to probe that, understand why, and you certainly don't feel you've had any influence on it. And I think one of my most satisfying things as a leader is always that, taking people along for the journey. And I think psychological safety is part of that. I wonder how different you've seen that in different organizations and different cultures, because I know you've worked in the likes of GSK, which I imagine has like a lot of different constraints on the kind of change you can make and the stakeholders you have. 100%. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it, and, and it's again, it's contextual to the organization, but GSK is a big healthcare pharma organization. So you have real constraints in those organizations. You have compliance and regulation. And of course, if you make a change in a product that has an impact, you you can impact a, a patient. So given that context, obviously the regulations and the things that we can do are different. 
but it doesn't mean that we can't create an organization where people can come with new ideas and, and, and test things. And what I found early on in my career at GSK is that people had been there for so long that they weren't, they were no longer questioning the way things work. And so we would come in and say, right, we want to build a certain piece of tech or do a certain thing. And the response we would get is, oh, you can't do that because of regulation. And we would ask, okay, what, what regulation? And the, they wouldn't know. But just over the years, some, like people have passed on, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And people have been there 20, 25, 30 years. And once you kind of scratch below the surface, you realize, actually, you know, you can do these things. And the same with, you know, SOX compliance and so on. Often none of these regulations actually are a blocker to agility and kind of moving it at, at speed. So I think coming back to your story and psychological safety, creating the environment where people do question things, where they do say, oh, actually, is that a real thing? Sometimes it'll be valid, but just creating that environment where, you know, people can ask those those questions. And one of the things that we actually did at GSK is we did a psychological safety survey. So we actually tried to measure it and then make improvements. And it wasn't driven by myself. It was my colleague, uh, Terry Brown. Yeah, he drove a lot of this. And so that's the challenge, I think, as a leader. You can come in and you can talk about psychological safety. You can talk about change and transformation. But our culture is our behaviors. It's the things that we do. And so what we've tried to do and what we tried to do at JSK is put those behaviors in place. We took a survey and on the back of that survey, every quarter, we asked for ideas. How could we make a, a safer environment? And it wasn't top down. It was everybody had the ability to kind of feed these things back. And again, you kind of, you know, you get what you, you measure and it's, you know, coming back to transformation. Mm-hmm. If you're not continually measuring both the cultural side of things and the progress, it's very hard to know, are we actually driving in the right direction? Are we actually headed where we want to be as an organization? Of course, there's the DORA uh, metrics that you can put in place. Um, there was a really good example. I'm, I'm forgetting the organization. I have a feeling it was HSBC, but I could be I could be wrong. But they put in a really great strategy as they went through their transformation. And they said, and I'll get it wrong, somebody will correct me, but they said they were trying to half their cycle time, double the number of deployments, half the number of incidents. And by putting these mechanisms in place as senior leaders, they didn't have to work out the detail. They empowered the team to come up with, okay, how do we achieve these things? Everyone was bought in that they wanted to half incidents and they wanted to yeah. increase deployment velocity. But by giving that context to the team and then empowering the team to work out how we achieve these things, you have that learning organization, you have that directionality towards transformation. And there's no top-down edict of, you know, you must do a CICD pipeline and everything must be peer-reviewed and automated. And that's the role of a leader through change and transformation. And those are so well measurable as well. They're such well-defined measures. And they're measures that people will be, should be excited about, really. Like people on the development team halving their incidents and getting their stuff deployed faster sounds great. I, I've never met a developer who wants more incidents and slower deployments. <laughs> exactly. It's what people want. And, and that's the thing. It's about creating that environment. Again, you hear of these successful transformation stories and there's always a, you know, the leader at the top who drove this whole thing. And I just don't believe it. I mean, maybe it is true in some organizations, but, you know, the real transformation comes from the people who do the work. And often they just want they need the space. They've never been empowered to have that space to do things because it's always deliver the next feature, deliver the next thing. And providing space for teams to improve the process, because if you don't, you end up with process debt, much like technical debt, 
over time, more and more processes added until the point where senior leaders step back and go, oh, wow, we're very slow. How do we go faster? And then they'll hire a new VP of engineering or a new CTO to make things go faster. Well, actually, if you'd stepped back and give the teams time, allotted time to improve the process, you wouldn't end up at this point where you have to step back and go, we're 10 years behind now, we need to go through another transformation. And so I think it's super important that you know we give teams the time that it takes to improve those processes. A really good example from Salesforce, when I joined, all deployments had to have a director of engineering approval. And what all that had happened there is there was, they had several deployments which went wrong and somebody in a senior leadership position went, right, a, a somebody with a title now needs to approve things, which is just crazy. And I, and I was one of them. I was a director of engineering. I didn't have the context. The people with the work had the, had the context. But, you know, we've added process debt there as a mechanism to try and, you know, improve reliability and safety. But we've, in, we've just slowed things down and, and, and added an additional process. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe you could explain for our listeners that they probably had about technical debt. Can you talk a little bit about the metaphor of process debt? Yeah, so process debt, I mean, it's just that, exactly as that example. You know, you add processes to improve stability or reliability or whatever it might be. And over time, if you don't step back and improve those processes, you know, whether it's I don't know, CICD or like whatever it might be, but you step back and take time to, which is kind of the slowing down to speed up, you know, like taking the time to improve those things. It's just going to accrue and accrue and accrue over time. And I think it was Jeff Bezos maybe that said, like, if if you're not spending time improving the process, the, the process kind of owns you, essentially. If you don't own the process, the process owns you. And that's so true. I think by a lot, whether it's 20% or whatever the, 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 the time is, but enabling teams to own their processes and own those things so that they can speed up. And, you know, teams need to have that 30,000 foot view you know, of the value stream. You know, we have an idea and getting in front of a, a customer, what does it take? And again, pulling that back to transformation, that's what you need to do. So for me, transformation is we're here, we want to be there in some period of time. How do we get there? And you need that 30,000 foot view, right? You need to step back and go, okay, here's how we operate today. So let's say that you want on-demand deployments and you don't currently have them today. Cool. What what are the processes that exist today, and where is the bottleneck? And if you've heard of theory of constraints, mm. um, that's all that is. Like, where's the biggest bottleneck? How do we alleviate it, and how do we go on to the next thing? And by having that thirty thousand foot view, understanding where you're going to get to, a mechanism to measure it, that's transformation in itself. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I guess I I want to be a sort of a devil's ad- advocate for a second, because I think we we started out by saying about like digital transformation, agile transformation as being buzzwordy, which I, I'm not definitely not going to argue against. I wonder how much having those buzzwords does help bring people along for the ride and incentivize people. Because if people know that they are not working in a way that is agile or they're not working in a way that is DevOps, and I'm, I'm going to do air quotes there, even though that doesn't work well on a podcast, and they they want to do that thing. They know that that thing is good, or they've heard about that thing being good. Is that is that enough to justify calling it that transformation? If it then helps to bring people along, 
Yeah, I think this is where my It Depends t-shirt might have come in handy because it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's absolutely contextual, you know, because I think there's two ways that it could go for those folks who haven't done DevOps or Agile or whatever you mean by those terms these days, they can get caught up in the process and they can pick a framework of safe or something like that, you know, something that's very heavyweight. And what they end up doing is following the process. You know, the most important thing is the context, isn't it? It's like, what are we actually trying to achieve? Put the words aside and words are important. Don't get me wrong, but like, what are we trying to achieve as an organization? And and starting from that point, right? Like, what is the context? Where do we want to, to head? If it's we want to enable teams to move faster, we want to enable teams to have make their own decisions, we want them to self-serve their infrastructure, whatever it might be. I think it's the context that's much more important than the words. It's the why, you know? So I, I don't think agile is bad. I think it's, it is almost meaningless these days. And so I'm not anti-agile. I'm just pro giving context as to what we're trying to achieve. And you know what? Starting with something like lightweight, like Scrum, that's fine. But again, you inspect and adapt. If we're in a year's time, you're at the same point and you're using the same processes. I would question it. You know, I would say like, why aren't you inspecting, adapting? Why haven't you evolved away? But using something lightweight as a starting point and upskilling people, the key thing, as you mentioned before, is to inspect and adapt and to evolve as a team towards something that's adapted and fitted for your own context. Mm. And in a way, this is the, the danger of a framework is the framework can look like the end point. If you say we're going through an agile transformation and people interpret that as we are going to start doing Scrum, then suddenly what might have been for you, you know, we want to be able to respond to changing user needs faster, or we want to have more, more feedback from our stakeholders sooner in the development process actually becomes we're going to have a sprint retrospective every Thursday. And, and it kind of gets translated down into these very kind of like almost banal goals rather than the sort of the level of change that you want. And so I, I think frameworks, frameworks are a helpful starting point, but as soon as frameworks look like the end goal, they kind of get in the way. That's so true. Uh, it's so true. And it's really interesting as well. You know, when I speak to organizations, they all want to go faster, of course, but very few of them focus on the directionality. And so, so many people focus on processes to improve agility and speed. There's no point going fast if you're going in the wrong direction. And I think this is where, you know, product thinking and product mindset and all those types of things have have come in, which is great. They're all great. But the same thing is happening in the product space. It's exactly the same thing. You know, look at continuous discovery habits and, you know, those things. They're all good. But if you follow the processes, you can be in months and months and months of discovery and research because that's what, you know, the theory says and that's what you, you know, kind of should do in quotes. Uh, But that's the thing, right? Like we need to be talking more about directionality as much as we do agility and speed so that we can drive in the right direction. But with all of these things, there's a level of pragmatism to be had, you know? I think you want a very strong direction and then lots of incremental change going on underneath it. You want to be like, here's where we're going, kind of laying out metrics as you've talked about. And rather than say, right, from next Monday, we are a scrum team. You say, let's let's introduce this into our, our work. We're gonna we're gonna start having a conversation every couple of weeks where we talk about how to 
how to improve what we do. Uh, and now we're going to start having a conversation every couple of weeks where we talk about how long we think each bit of work is going to take. And we're not going to worry about too much beyond that two-week period. And you can start borrowing the ideas and moving towards it, exploring them, getting them kind of adopted by a team without having to say, okay, we're going to adopt this framework and now now we're done because we've done that. Exactly. Yeah. And I think giving the team's context of the product as well, right? So I think there's the the old way of working where engineers are folks that build and, and deliver. And I'm really, I'm really kind of pro-product minded engineer. So providing the engineers as well as the product managers with the context of the end user. And we should be doing that on a weekly basis as a product team, looking at the data, exploring the data, having a voice of the customer. And again, I think it's Marty Kagan who says, if you're using engineers just for engineering, you're getting about 50% of the work. I truly believe that because if you connect them to the context of the thing they're trying to solve and the end user, then you get them involved and you get them coming up with new ideas based on what you can build with the technology. But I think having that instilled in an environment in a culture where the team are focused on that end user as a collective, and to your point, small iterations and a and adapting towards a known direction, right? And this is where coming back to that mm. vision is really important. For me, a strategy is how do we play to win? Like what are the things that we do and what are the things that we don't do? And then that enables the team to have focus to drive, as you said, those incremental iterations towards success. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if we can change tack a bit and talk about the way that you approach making the change itself and i think that a really key question here is whether you start with people and bringing them along for the ride or whether you start changing processes and sort of explain as you go and with people which people do you start with how do you think about that yeah of course you have to do both i think it depends again of the the context if you're coming into an organization as a new leader you don't know what needs changing, right? You have to spend some time with the people who understand the organization, they understand the context, they understand the challenges and the problems in place and build trust and relationships because people aren't going to trust you inherently when you first join. They don't know if, you're, if you've got the competence, they don't know how you think, you don't know if you've got their best interest at heart. So you have to build relationships and, and trust in that specific example right, where you're a new leader coming into an organization. In absence of that, it's very hard for you to know what direction. So your first X number of days, weeks, months are really about understanding the context of the organization from the people who, who are in it. And so that's what I try to do when I come into an organization. And as I said earlier, they often have many of the answers. They've just not been empowered to put them into, into practice. So always people, and I would say that because I'm more people focused than, than anything. But of course, you have to have a strategy. You have to have a strong leadership team, you know, and you have to have the right people on, on the bus from the from the start. So, yeah, it's it's I think it has to be a mixture. You know, you have to understand the business, the strategy, the, the competition, the product, all of those things. But number one for me is is 100 percent the people. And so what are the examples here at GSK? So again, GSK was going through a big transformation within tech when I joined. One of the first things we did as a team when we came in is look at how long does it take? If I've got an idea and I'm trying to get it in front of a customer, how long does that actually take? And what we found is at GSK, it was months, you know, because so think of spinning up infrastructure, building the code, et cetera. It was six to nine months. 
Uh, and that was because you had various teams doing various parts of that value stream. So if I wanted some infrastructure spun up, well, there was a networking team and there was a provisioning team and there was a, a storage team and so on. And so that value stream all added up to you know six to nine months. And again, going back to your point of those small incremental iterations, it was never going to work if we were going to work in the in the air quotes agile environment that, that we wanted. And so one of the things that we did as a team was we came up with a vision, which we called our uh, zero to 60 vision. What we asked of ourselves was, could we build a infrastructure, a platform that enabled product teams to spin up infrastructure and build something, a bootstrapped product within 60 minutes? And, you know, there was things that we couldn't compromise on, obviously being a pharma company, so high security posture, observability, you know, logging metrics, all those things. Like we couldn't compromise on those things. So it wasn't about negating those things for speed. But by putting that vision in, that zero to 60 vision, I couldn't work out the detail. I'm not the smart person who can come up with the the technological kind of detail to build that type of platform. But empowering the team to say, here's where we want to get to, like, let's work it out together. And that's what we did. We spent the next three to six months working out how do we actually build that? How do we build infrastructure as code that enables teams to build things? You know, what processes do and don't we want? And over time, we got to that point. We got to the point where the teams could spin products up. They can get it into production in front of the customer within basic program, within that 60-minute period. I'll actually, so I can send a a link to a blog post that we that we wrote and if you don't know if you want to put it in the, in the show notes yeah that would be fantastic and actually i i think that illustrates what what i would say about people in process which is you want the people to build the process if you're thinking about the sort of process of the that you're going to introduce first then you're kind of coming in with all the answers and might well be wrong there's a, a framework for thinking about leading change which which i like which is about starting with creating a sort of sense of the future and what that could be and then building a group of people who are going to kind of work together to achieve it and then forming the vision as a group and then getting more people involved who are bought into that vision and then enabling them to actually go, starting to get those first wins and then sustaining that. And then finally, the very last step of this eight-step process is that you actually institute the change and formalize it. And those are basically seven steps that are all about people and then the last step is like okay now you get to make it into a process it would be better if we were doing this i'll just write down what we should be doing and then everyone can just do it and i think part of being a better leader is accepting that you're probably wrong about what that should be and instead as you said already right giving people the why and letting them work out the details of how they're going to get there that's yeah have you there's a really good book called switch by dan and chip heath Oh, no, I haven't read that. Highly recommend it. But it's very similar to what you're saying. And they talk about it in the sense of the elephant, the rider, and the path. So essentially, the elephant is what they call the kind of the emotional side of the brain. The the rider is the more kind of rational, the pragmatic side. And then the path is the, you know, the path to where we're trying to get to in terms of steering change. But it's those three components to to change. You need to shape each of those, right? So you need to appeal to the emotional side. You need to appeal to the uh, rational side, and then you need to clear the path. And I think for a leader, that's 
the, the key, I mean, it's involved in all three of those things, but there's an outweighted impact in the path. That's one thing that we do um, have the ability to significantly impact. Like, how are we changing ourselves, but also how are we changing the path to enable those teams to make that change? It's not just about passing it down to the team saying, right, here's where we're going, go and work it out. It's also, and what can I do? What are the things that I can change? How can I clear things? What is stopping you? And I think, again, leaning in as leaders, your job isn't to step back and go, right, I'm empowering. And that means I'm that means I'm stepping back. No, it's your job is to get in there with them and to work out the detail and to get dirty in that process as well to move, remove obstacles for the team. Exactly. It comes back to what you were saying before about servant leadership, that you're giving the team the job to do and saying, you work out how to do this. But part of the bit of that that you exclusively can do is the bit that affects adjacent organisations, which in your position as a leader, you can influence in the way that other people can't. And so clearing the path is an example of you doing that to help people on their road to help their rider and elephant. Yes, yeah. And I don't know whether I've explained that that too well, but it's a brilliant book. So maybe re- read the book because it's fantastic. But, you know, often as well as a, as a leader, your job is to clear the path with other leaders, you know, maybe at the, at the same kind of level, colleagues of of yourself, maybe people in the exec team, because you're not going to get everybody's buy-in at that point as well. And you often have to spend uh, sometimes an outsized proportion of time working with those folks to say, look, here's what we're trying to do. Here's why we're we're trying to get. That can be challenging as well for a leader to make sure that you've got allies so that, you know, you're all headed in the the same direction because, you know, you have strong characters at senior leadership often. And, you know, yeah, I think influence is is a key part of your role. Yeah. Subject for another podcast. Uh, No doubt. (laughs) Well, Ryan, that was awesome. I really enjoyed chatting to you. I hope this has been useful. Certainly, I found it really thought-provoking. And yeah, I'm just glad you could join us. That's been fantastic. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I really enjoyed chatting too.